Welcome, I'm David DeCoste, the Director of Campus Ethics Programs at the Markle Center for Applied Ethics, and welcome to this evening's Regan Lecture, sponsored by the Markle Center for Applied Ethics. We're delighted to have everyone here from campus and from the surrounding community. The Regan Lecture is the most prestigious annual lecture put on by the Ethics Center, and the lectures are made possible by a generous gift from the New York Life Insurance Company in honor of William Reagan III. The Ethics Center is deeply grateful for the support of Bill and Ann Regan and regret that they cannot be with us this evening. Tonight's event is also part of the Project on Freedom of Speech and Civil Discourse at the Ethics Center, a year-long project this year. I just want to call your attention uh, to two related events coming soon, um, a conversation with Kamau Bell and the Hackworth Fellows, some senior fellows at the Ethics Center this Tuesday at 2 o'clock in the Willimon Room, and uh, an ethics at noon on the question of should Santa Clara's speech policy be changed with Professor Larry Nelson. That ethics at noon is next Wednesday at noon in the Wiegand Room. A few other brief notes before we get started. So after Dr. Tatum speaks, she will take questions from all of you. We ask that you keep your questions or comments brief and to the point so that we can get more people into the conversation. Also, we will have microphones to bring to you um, if you do wish to speak. So if you put up your hand and then we have a couple people with mics who can come by. Please fill out the evaluation forms after the event, and after you fill out the evaluation forms, please join us for a reception in the lobby outside the St. Clara room here um, where we have some uh, nice food and drink. Kirk Hansen, the executive director of the Markle Center for Applied Ethics, will introduce our speaker. Kirk. Thank you, David. Uh, welcome to this evening's Regan Lecture, Listening to the Stories We Don't Know the power of dialogue about race. And our speaker is Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. Dr. Tatum is the former president of Spelman College, one of the country's most distinguished historically black colleges and universities. She is also one of the nation's most prominent writers on the psychology of racism and how to talk about it. An article last fall about Dr. Tatum in The Atlantic noted, quote, in 1997, Beverly Daniel Tatum, one of the country's foremost authorities on the psychology of racism, answered a recurring question that surfaced in her work with teachers, administrators, and parent groups. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? The result was a critically acclaimed book by the same name that gave readers, numbering in the hundreds of thousands, a starting point to demystify conversations about race, to better understand the concept of racial identity, and to communicate across racial and ethnic divides. But where are we now in 2018? I think it's fair to say that the aspects of racism long familiar and deeply painful to African Americans, have now become more evident to the whole country, a reality that can make conversations about race both more possible but also more difficult. 
cell phone cameras have recorded the fatal encounters between African Americans and the police that follow patterns long known to African American community and now inescapably present to many others. Our national political climate is filled with explicit and implicit displays of racism. On our campuses, we are locked in difficult conversations about white privilege and about racism. It's important to face these challenges of dialogue honestly. Human lives are political and academic community, and the most fundamental questions of ethics are at stake today. It would not be possible to have a better person than Dr. Tatum to help us address these matters. Indeed, we're incredibly fortunate that she has come across the country this morning in order to be with us tonight, but has also spent the day generously meeting with faculty, staff, and students. For decades, her work has garnered national and international attention, starting with the 1997 book, which brought her to prominent national attention. It, uh, a new version, a new edition of the book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, was issued last fall. A new, um, she is also known for books such as Assimilation Blues, Black Families in a White Community, and Can We Talk About Race and Other Conversations in an Era of School Segregation. In all of these works, she's brought her academic grounding and her clinical practice as a psychologist to bear on the topic with wisdom, subtlety, and most importantly, hope. Professor Brent, Brett Solomon of our Child Studies faculty said of her work, it touches you to the core and allows you to reflect on your past racial identity development while paving a way for the future. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, our 2018 Regan Lecturer. Thank you so much for that very gracious introduction, and thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you, David, for the invitation. And I am delighted to be here as the Regan Lecturer this year, so thanks very much for uh, making this all possible. I reflected a long time on the title of my talk. Of course, when you are coming someplace, they ask you, what's the title? And, uh, and I wanted to call it listening to the stories that are hard to hear. And of course, embedded in this conversation, as you'll hear, is the idea about the power of dialogue as we think about talking about race. Let me just say that for me, the conversation after the talk is always the most fun. So I'm hoping that you will have questions and that we will have time for some exchange because um, I hope I'm going to give you something to think about and respond to and I'm looking forward to that part of our time together. So knowing that I was coming to Santa Clara to the Center for Applied Ethics, I thought about what is it that is required for the ethical treatment of human beings? That's the fundamental question. And what is it that makes people genuinely feel like their human dignity 
their humanity has been respected. A psychologist I admire, no longer living, but someone who I learned a lot from, is a woman named Dr. Jean Baker Miller. She wrote um, a feminist, toward a feminist psychology, and she uh, often said that what we all want is to feel seen, heard, and understood. We all want to feel seen, heard, and understood. We want to be recognized as worthy of acknowledgement and listened to as though our life experience mattered. We want to experience, in other words, empathy. But why does empathy seem so hard to find in a society as deeply divided as ours is right now? More than 50 years ago, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a book that points us toward an answer to that question. The book title is, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? And it was published in 1967. It was the last book he wrote. As you know, this spring, we celebrated or commemorated the 50th anniversary of his assassination in 1968. But a year before, he wrote this book, Chaos or Community? And even though he had a lot to say in 1967 that seems relevant to our society today, there are some things about our current moment that are different. And one of those things in particular is our current demographic situation. Our population is a lot more diverse today than it was in 1967. I was born in 1954, and this may surprise some of you, but in 1954, the U.S. population was 90% white. Sixty years later, 2014, the K-12 population is more than 50%. 2014 was the first year that the K-12 student population was more than 50% children of color. So that tells you there's been a lot of change. And certainly, as we look at the society right this minute, we know that the Latinx population is the largest population of color. That's a change, certainly from 1967. Um, today, representing about 18% of the population. African Americans representing about 13%. The Asian-American population is about 6%, and even though that's a relatively small number, it is actually the fastest-growing segment of communities of color. In 1967, only 1% of babies were considered multiracial. Today, 10% of U.S. babies born are considered multiracial. But despite that demographic change, some things have remained unchanged. And one of those things is that schools across America are still quite segregated. And many of our neighborhoods are segregated, and those things go together. When neighborhoods are segregated, schools are also segregated. Which means that young people in the United States are growing up in racially divided communities that are almost as separated from each other's daily lives as they were in 1967 when Dr. King wrote his book. In that book, Where Do We Go From Here?, he said, like life, racial understanding is not something that we find, but something that we must create. What we find when we enter these mortal planes is existence, but existence is the raw material out of which all life must be created. A productive and happy life is not something that you find, it is something that you make. And so the ability of racial groups to work together to understand each other will not be found ready-made. 
it must be created by the fact of contact. In the United States today, perhaps the best example of the fact of contact is provided by the armed, armed services, actually. The Armed Services offers the best contemporary example of bringing diverse communities together using four key principles of social psychology. Bringing people together as equals, where they are required to work cooperatively toward a common goal with the sanction of an authority figure. Those four things. Coming together as equals, being asked to do something in a cooperative way, working together toward a common goal, under the sanction of an authority figure. That certainly sounds like what happens in the armed forces. It could also sound like what happens in a classroom, on a college or university campus. Um, you can bring people together as equals. You can give them a cooperative task. You can um, work toward a common goal under the sanction or the authority of the faculty member, for example. But those four key principles in social psychology are not all that's needed for empathy. There's something else that is needed for us to feel truly seen, feel heard, and understood, and that is what we might call genuine empathy. And so the question is, how do we create contact that allows for genuine empathy across lines of difference? I'm going to argue tonight that the development of empathy requires listening to each other's life stories. But... Some stories are hard to hear. Some stories we don't want to listen to. So tonight I'm going to tell you a hard to hear story. And this particular story had a very powerful effect on me the first time I heard it. And it actually is not my story or the story of any of you. It's actually the modified version of a folktale about a king who created a large bell. He wanted a large bell that could be heard across the countryside one that would be astonishingly beautiful in tone. And he commissioned the most highly skilled bell maker in the land to make this bell for him. So the bell maker set out for the task. He created a bell. The king heard it play. He thought it was good, but not great. And said, you know, this is not going to cut it. I need another bell better than this one. So the bell maker tried again. Better bell. Still better than the first, but not as good as the king wanted. He really wanted an astonishingly pure-sounding bell and was putting a lot of pressure on the bellmaker to deliver that. And so the bellmaker told him, look, if you want this bell to be, you know, the best in the land, this is what you're going to have to do to get it. He said the only way to get the beautiful tone you're looking for is to sacrifice someone. If you sacrifice a young maiden in the making of the bell, you will have an astonishingly beautiful tone. So the king said, okay. And he sent out his soldiers uh, to look for the appropriate sacrifice and found an old woman who was widowed and poor and she had a beautiful daughter. And so they snatched her daughter and sacrificed her for the making of the bell. And sure enough, the bell was just that, really astonishingly beautiful in tone, pure and lovely in sound, and everyone who heard it marveled. Except for the poor woman whose daughter had been sacrificed. Whenever she heard the bell, she cried in grief because, of course, it reminded her of her loss. 
There was injustice literally baked into that bell. But the fact is that most of the people who heard the bell did not know that. They just enjoyed the sound. When I heard that story the first time, it made me think about what do I enjoy without understanding the sacrifice that created the thing that I'm enjoying? Who's, what metaphorical bells are ringing today whose sound I enjoy, whose continued ringing is for somebody else a reminder of terrible injustice? Whose story don't I know? Whose sacrifice is invisible to me? What good thing, like the sound of a beautiful bell, am I enjoying at someone else's expense? That's what I thought about. And certainly my perspective, or yours, about the value of any such bell and its sweet sound is certainly going to be shaped by our knowledge or lack of knowledge about its history. Sometimes we prefer not to know such history. If we knew, what would we do? What would be our obligation? Would we stop listening to the bell? Would we condemn the king and try to overthrow his rule? What if the king is long gone? Can we just forget about the price that was paid? Would we demand reparations for the poor mother whose daughter was sacrificed? Or would we shrug our shoulders and say, I didn't order that bell. It's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. How you respond to that question, your perspective, is likely to be rooted in your life experience and may not reflect the life experiences of others. Whose perspective might be missing? Whose history don't you know? These might seem like theoretical questions, but in fact, they have real implications for what is going on around us today. If we extend the metaphor of the beautiful bell to the United States, we must acknowledge that there is injustice baked into our bell. Jim Wallace, a well-known pastor and publisher of Sojourners magazine, writes from his perspective as a white European-American man about this embedded flaw in a book titled America's Original Sin, Racism, White Privilege, and the Bridge to a New America. In it, he writes these words. The United States has the most racially, excuse me, the United States has the most racial diversity of any country in the world. This diversity is essential to our greatness, but it has also given us a history of tension and conflict. Ironically and tragically, American diversity began with acts of violent racial oppression that I am calling America's original sin. The theft of land from indigenous people who were either killed or removed and the enslavement of millions of Africans who became America's greatest economic resource in building a new nation. The theft of land and the violent exploitation of labor were embedded in America's origins." End quote. The injustice was baked in and a racial hierarchy created that we still see evidence of today. All of that is part of our American bell. And when we hear the bell's song, the national anthem, or recite its pledge, some, particularly those at the top of the hierarchy, may hear a beautiful sound, while others, particularly those identified with the people at the bottom, feel the pain of past and present injustice. In the last year, we've heard a lot about the controversy sparked by former NFL player Colin Kaepernick's decision not to stand for the national anthem 
as a silent protest. He obviously was using his sphere of influence as a sports figure to remind us of the injustice baked into the bell, injustice that still has not been completely purged from the bell's core and that is still resonating from the bell today. In the last year, we've also heard a lot of discussion about other symbols and what they represent. We could talk about the differing responses to Confederate flags and statues, for example. Recently, I came across an essay by Tom Ziller, who is a sports writer, who captured two different perspectives, that of Colin Kaepernick and that of another football player, Saints quarterback Drew Brees, who criticized Colin for his silent protest. Mr. Ziller wrote, Brees hears the anthem and sees his World War II veteran grandfather and dozens of soldiers he's met through his involvement with the USO. Kaepernick hears the anthem and sees Philando Castile, Walter Scott, Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice, Eric Garner. These are not mutually exclusive visions. America can be worthy of pride and worthy of disgust. Even World War II provided lessons to this effect. While American soldiers liberated Europe, 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent were rounded up and incarcerated by our government. The examples from our slave-owning founding fathers to the century of Jim Crow laws that followed emancipation are endless. As Ziller points out, both men's perspectives are valid, but I would argue that the first perspective is based on an incomplete history, even of veterans and their World War II experience. For example, white veterans and veterans of color were not treated the same. After World War II, the veterans of that war received several major benefits under the GI Bill, providing funding for education, job training, and home loan guarantees, a major factor in the growth of the American middle class in the 1950s. Yet, during the same time, thousands of black veterans in both the North and South were denied housing and business loans, as well as admission to whites-only colleges and universities. To give you a sense of the degree of discrimination, of the 67,000 mortgages insured by the GI Bill in just New York and northern New Jersey, less than 100 of them went to support home purchases by veterans of color. 67,000, less than 100 for veterans of color. When we don't acknowledge this aspect of our history, we fail to acknowledge the pain that was and is still baked into the bell. Similarly, people with different life experiences hear different meanings when they hear protesters chant the phrase, Black Lives Matter, a rallying cry that began as a hashtag on Twitter in response to the police shootings of unarmed black men and women. I gave a talk a few months ago, and an elderly white gentleman told me during the Q&A why he objected to the phrase, Black Lives Matter. He said, I feel left out. I feel excluded by it. When you hear the phrase, Black Lives Matter, does it sound like only Black Lives Matter, or does it sound like Black Lives Matter too? When we hear that phrase, are we aware that there is a Native Lives Matter movement as well? Do we know that Native Americans are more likely to be killed in an encounter with police than any other demographic in the United States? To me, it's obvious that these slogans highlight the ways that the lives of people of color have been devalued historically and currently, not just because police officers have been able to kill unarmed people of color without accountability, 
but because the health of low-income citizens, both children and adults, can be disregarded when water known to be contaminated with lead was allowed to flow from the, their faucets for months in places like Flint. And predatory lenders can get away with offering subprime loans to black and Latinx borrowers even when they have credit scores and incomes comparable to white borrowers who are being offered more conventional, less risky loans, just to name a few recent examples. Such discriminatory behavior can happen for months, in some cases years, without public outcry, because those lives, it seems, are considered less valuable. But if you don't know those stories, if you don't know that information, you don't understand what those affected are talking about. And without that knowledge, you can't have empathy. In fact, without that knowledge, not only don't you have empathy, you often have resentment against those stories we don't want to hear. Social scientists know that those at the bottom of any hierarchy usually know more about those at the top than those at the top know about those at the bottom. And it's easy to understand why. Imagine this. The maid that cleans her employer's house will know a lot more about the employer's life than the employer is likely to know about hers. She sees the inside of that house and every room in it, but it's entirely possible that the employer has never been to the maid's house or visited her neighborhood and may not know much about the maid's life away from the job. When we don't know the stories of those at the bottom of the hierarchy, our knowledge is incomplete, not just because we don't know the stories of those at the bottom, it's incomplete because we can't truly know the stories of those at the top without that information, because the stories are linked. Consider, for example, the story of Georgetown University. Like, Sarah, like Santa Clara, it is a Jesuit institution, the oldest one in the United States, founded in 1789. In a very tangible way, those at the bottom of the hierarchy made it possible for those at the top to be educated at Georgetown. In 1838, Georgetown was facing financial ruin. The priests in charge of the university paid the school's debts by selling 272 of the slaves they owned, netting $115,000, what would be in today's dollars $3.3 million. Rachel Swarns of the New York Times vividly described what happened in an article she wrote about it saying this, the human cargo was loaded on ships at a bustling wharf in the nation's capital, destined for the plantations of the Deep South. Some slaves pleaded for rosaries as they were rounded up, praying for deliverance. But on this day, in the fall of 1838, no one was spared, not the two-month-old baby and her mother, not the field hands, not the shoemaker, and not Cornelius Hawkins, who was about 13 years old when he was forced on board. Their panic and desperation would be mostly forgotten for more than a century. But this was no ordinary slave sale. The enslaved African Americans had belonged to the nation's most prominent Jesuit priests, and they were sold along with scores of others to help secure the future. The university itself owes its existence to this history, said Adam Rothman, a historian at Georgetown, and a member of a university working group that is studying ways for the institution to acknowledge and try to make amends for its tangled roots in slavery. We could call Georgetown another beautiful bell, 
But the injustice of slavery and the sacrifice of 272 pleading human beings is certainly baked in. How can a bell like that be fixed? And how can we fix this American bell we call the United States? Certainly, efforts have been made in my lifetime. I have seen progress. My father was born in 1926, just three years before Martin Luther King Jr. was born. My dad was 90 when he died in 2016. He was fortunate to have grown up in a family of educators and was able to attend college in the 1940s, a time where that was uncommon for African Americans. But he earned his undergraduate degree at Howard University, which you probably know is a historically black college in Washington, D.C. And then after that, he earned a master's degree at the University of Iowa and became a college professor. First teaching at Florida A&M in Tallahassee, Florida, before moving to Massachusetts in 1958, which is where he became the first African-American professor at Bridgewater State College, now known as Bridgewater State University. I tell you that background by way of this. I was born in 1954 when my father was still teaching art at Florida A&M. As I mentioned, he had earned his master's degree at the University of Iowa, and he wanted to get his doctorate in art education. Florida State University, which is also in Tallahassee, had a graduate program in art education, and it would have been very convenient to attend since it was in the same city where we lived. Unfortunately, because in 1954, even after Brown versus Board of Education, the universities in Florida were still segregated, and my father was not allowed to attend Florida State, which at that time was a whites-only institution. So because of the Brown versus Board of Education decision, it was necessary for the state of Florida to provide some accommodation. They had to do something to provide access for this graduate student. And so what they did was what a lot of southern states did, and that is they paid his transportation out of the state. They paid his transportation to Pennsylvania. He took a train commuting back and forth between Florida and Pennsylvania, and eventually finished his degree at Penn State. Today, that sounds like craziness. You know, we think about states trying to maintain or retain the talent in their state, trying to encourage young people who grow up in that state to stay there, go to their flagship universities. Um, we see that that was craziness, but that's what they were doing. And Florida's loss was Massachusetts' gain. My father spent 30 years teaching at Bridgewater State, and that's where I grew up, in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Certainly, that story does not describe my life. I went to the college of my choice. I went to the graduate school of my choice. Um, in my lifetime, there has been progress. But Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. But in my lifetime, even though I've seen it bend, I want to tell you that right now it seems a little stuck. The arc seems a little stuck. And progress of any kind, we know, is rarely linear. It is often a matter of two steps forward and one step back. In his book, 1967, Where Do We Go From Here?, Martin Luther King Jr. made a similar observation, writing, This tendency of the nation to take one step forward in the question of racial justice and then to take a step backward is still the pattern. Periods of progressive reform 
are often met by backlash. As others, perhaps fearful of what is unfamiliar, try to return to the status quo. There are many examples in history of this pattern, and if we're paying attention, we can see evidence of that pattern right now. We can see it in the effort to squash voting rights, to gut the Voting Rights Act. We can see it in the resegregation of public education. We can see it in many different ways. We are at an important historical moment with regard to our nation's legacy of dealing with race, and it's a moment that contains both dangers and opportunities. We can allow the forces leading to greater segregation to drive us further apart as a nation, or we can use our leadership as active citizens to make a positive change. As a psychologist, I know one thing for sure, and that is that leadership matters. Fundamentally, we human beings are not that different from other social animals. Not unlike wolves, we tend to follow the leader. Yes, we have an innate tendency to think in us-them categories. Some people will say, well, of course, we will always have prejudice because we categorize people and we think in these us-them categories. But the truth of the matter is, yes, our brains organize information in that way, but we also look to the leader to let us know who is the us and who is the them. Sometimes that information comes from parents who are signaling, these are people in our group, those are people not in our group. Sometimes it comes from our teachers signaling who belongs in our class, who doesn't. Um, sometimes it comes from the nation's leaders. But the leader, whether we're talking at the family level, the community level, or the national level, the leader can define who is in and who is out. The leader can draw the circle narrowly or widely. When the leader draws the circle in an exclusionary way, with the rhetoric of hostility, the sense of threat among the followers is heightened. When the rhetoric is expansive and inclusionary, the threat is reduced. It sounds simple, but we know it's not so simple. It's more complicated than that, but certainly we know that leaders help define that reality for the rest of us. And everyone here, regardless of who you are or what you do, whether you're a student, a staff member, a faculty member, a member of the community, someone leading an organization, or someone a member of it, the reality is each of us has such a capacity to define reality in that way. Each of us has the capacity to influence others, whether they be family members, friends, classmates, or colleagues. The leader, and if you haven't figured this out, all of you are in this category, the leader has to ask the question, how is the circle being drawn? Who's inside it? Who's outside it? What can I do to make the circle bigger? We live in a time when anxiety and fear are rising, and us-them lines are being drawn in a way that does not bode well for the health of our society. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, we are caught in a web of mutuality, and that means we have to know the stories at the bottom of the society as well as those at the top. We need a much wider perspective, seeking out the stories, the histories we don't know. And each of us, everyone here, can 
broaden our perspective. Each of us has the opportunity to broaden our perspective. Certainly, a learning environment like this one is a good place to start because there is the opportunity to engage with people whose life experiences are different from your own and to engage those stories. Before I became a college president, I was a professor of psychology and I taught a course on the psychology of racism for more than 20 years. And as my students learned more about the persistence of racism in our society, they often felt overwhelmed by it and sometimes a little depressed, um, feeling helpless to do anything about it. And I used to say to them the same thing I would say to all of you, you have more power than you think. Everyone has a sphere of influence. Family members, friends, classmates, co-workers, colleagues in your book club, members of your house of worship. When you think about it, your social network is broad. And if you use it, you can, in fact, be a change agent. We are all part of a chain of change agents, men and women, white and of color, who in large and small ways have taken action, not unlike Colin Kaepernick, who raise and ask difficult questions, risking some discomfort, using their social power and privilege to interrupt the status quo. If we want to fix our bell, we cannot sit idly by. We have to take action in order to continue that chain of courage and commitment. As it was mentioned in my introduction, my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race, is 20 years old, 1997, originally published, and I rewrote most of it. It's been completely revised and updated, and it came out in the fall of 2017. And when I was working on the rewrite, when I was working on the update, I had a chance to visit a number of college campuses. And one of the campuses I visited was Texas A&M. Something happened there that was a source of inspiration when I was working on the book, and I'm going to tell you what happened. By coincidence, about a week before my visit, there was a racial incident on campus, and that incident involved a group of uh, black students from Houston visiting the campus, and they were approached by some white students Texas A&M students, a small group, not very many, maybe three or four people, but they were approached by this group of people who began to um, use racial slurs and tell them that they didn't belong there and that they were not welcome there. Very unfortunate incident, certainly. Now, you might say, well, what was inspiring about that? The answer was nothing. <laughs> but what happened next is the thing that I found um, encouraging. So what happened next? What gave me hope is that after this event happened, the student body president, who was a young white man um, who now has graduated, but at the time was a senior student body president, made a video about the incident and talked to his fellow Texas A&M students about what had happened. You can still find it on YouTube uh, if you look for it, Texas A&M student body president, uh, 2016. But he issued a statement on YouTube. It was just three and a half minutes long, but this is what he said. He talked about the fact that, first of all, he said to his classmates, 
I am hearing that some of you are saying that this didn't really happen, that this was a hoax, that people made it up. He said, if you are thinking that, you need, if you're saying that, you need to just stop. There's no reason to believe that a group of students and their adult chaperones came to campus and made up this incident. It happened. We need to acknowledge it. But then he said, we also have to take responsibility. And he spoke about himself. He said, you know, I have to acknowledge that I've heard this language. I've heard people make these remarks, usually behind closed doors. And when I've heard it, I've been silent. And he said, but I now realize that my silence in the face of racist and sexist remarks has given permission for people to make these statements and say these things and behave in this way publicly. He said, our silence fosters hate. Our silence enables the hateful to feel comfortable and welcome. He urged his fellow students to take responsibility for making a change. And I was very impressed with both the forthrightness and courage that was embodied in his statement. His example of leadership was, for me, a sign of hope. Empathy requires effort. Listening to other people's hard-to-hear stories is not easy. As Dr. King said, racial understanding is not something that we find, but something that we must create. Are we creating it? That's the question I want to ask. Are we creating it? We could be. In the closing words of his 1967 book, he wrote, we still have a choice today, nonviolent coexistence or violent co-annihilation. But he warned, this may well be mankind's last chance to choose between chaos and community. If we don't want chaos, we must choose community. And in order to choose community, we must choose to engage in dialogue with each other. We must choose to listen so that we can see, hear, and understand. Even to listen even to the stories that are hard to hear. And then, because we've listened, hopefully we will then be inspired to work for lasting change so that we can all enjoy the sound of beautiful bells. Bells harmonized with the tuning fork of social justice that we can enjoy together as a united community. That is what the power of dialogue can lead to. But it doesn't happen unless we begin by listening to stories that we don't want to hear. Thank you very much. Let's have some conversation. Thank you. So what's your advice on uh, what people can do to change their own uh, fears and, and biases, whether it be at Starbucks, Colorado State University, or yes. others? Yes. So, well, you know, you were referencing um, Starbucks and the incident that happened at Colorado State. I'm imagining most people know about Starbucks. Do you know about Colorado State? Okay, so let me just tell you. So we know that the Starbucks incident involved uh, two black men waiting for a third person. Um, they are minding their own business, but waiting in a Starbucks, haven't yet ordered, waiting for the third person to come. And the store manager 
decides that they are threatening in some way. She calls the police. The police come, take them away in handcuffs because they are, quote, loitering and somehow disturbing the peace of the Starbucks. So they weren't doing anything. And, of course, the person they were waiting for, uh, who was a white person, arrives just as the police are arriving, but still they are arrested and later released and not charged with anything. But what was it that made that Starbucks manager feel threatened enough to feel like she had to call the police. That's one. The second one is a similar kind of story, different cast of characters, but this was a college tour. Imagine each of you visiting your campus of choice. You came to Santa Clara, you were on a college tour, and on this college tour at Colorado State are two Native American young men who one of the people, one of the moms on the college tour starts to feel nervous around these young men, doesn't understand why they're there. She tries to ask them questions about why they're on the tour. They're not particularly talkative, and she decides that they must be up to no good, and she calls the campus police, and they are physically removed from the tour. Can you imagine being there on a college tour? Someone says, you know, you look suspicious. We're taking you away. Um, Those are just two examples of people projecting their stereotypes, projecting their fear. There's another one I could just share with you. I mean, there's been a lot of examples lately. This last one um, was uh, three filmmakers staying at an Airbnb in California. Maybe you read about this one. This was just a couple of days ago. They were, um, you know, they had stayed in the Airbnb. They are now packing their stuff up and getting ready to leave, essentially checking out. Um, a white neighbor sees them, calls the police, thinks they're, you know, stealing. Uh, and then the police come, and the police have never heard of Airbnb. It became a, you know, whole thing. In each of these incidents, someone is projecting their biases onto people who are minding their own business, not doing anything, and, you know, white people projecting onto people of color. And so the question is, what can we do about this? Well, it's very difficult um, to... address unconscious bias without making them conscious, right? You know, one of the things that we know, um, I, if you've had a chance to read uh, my book, either the new version or the older version, I talk about the fact that we all get misinformation about people different from ourselves. We also get misinformation about people like ourselves, right? But this misinformation comes to us in the form of stereotypes. It comes to us through the TV we watch, the books we read, the jokes we hear people tell. It's pervasive. You can't avoid it, right? And um, I, I describe it as like breathing smog. You know, nobody... You know, I didn't walk in today and have hear anyone describe me as a smog breather. But, you know... If you live in a smoggy place, I do, uh, and most of us do, you know, live someplace where there's smog in the air, we are all smog breathers. And some places are smoggier than others, but we all get some of it. And if you breathe some in, you're going to breathe some out, right? If you take in misinformation, you're going to project that misinformation in some way. And you don't do it out of malice. Uh, often, sometimes people do, but often people are not doing it out of malice, but they're doing it out of a lack of awareness of their own internalized stereotypes and biases. So 
people who research this topic will tell us that it's, in some ways it's easier to prevent the formation of bias than to get rid of it once you have it. It's like a virus in your system. But you can help control it by becoming aware, you know, to the extent that you become aware, um, to the extent that you can say to yourself, I know I have stereotypes about black people as dangerous. And, you know, is there anything about this situation that should make me feel like this is dangerous? You know, let me challenge myself on that. Um, I might have, you know, we all can do that. It is um, difficult, though. So, however, one of the things that I think is really important about this is not only to challenge ourselves, but to listen to people when they tell you it happens to them, right? You know, so when someone says, you know, I get followed around when I go to certain stores, somebody else might say, it's just your imagination. Not really. You know, I mean, and that, and this comes back to um, that Jean Baker statement about wanting to feel seen, heard, and understood. When someone is having an experience and telling you about it, they want it to be validated. They don't want it to be invalidated. And sometimes when we hear stories that make us uncomfortable or make us feel guilty or make us feel, you know, self-conscious about our privilege, and there's all kinds of privilege. We, you know, we can talk about racial privilege. We can talk about heterosexual privilege. We can talk about, you know, class privilege. We can talk about privilege related to physical ability. It's all kinds of privilege. But when someone feels as though they're being asked to think about their privileged status, they often will respond in a way that invalidates the other person's experience because that's an uncomfortable conversation. So that's the value, um, coming back to my original point, about the um, when we create opportunities for sustained dialogue about difficult topics like racism in our society and how it impacts individuals and society. Um, when we create space for that conversation, acknowledging that there will be times when experiences are shared that other people haven't had, or don't always feel comfortable hearing about, that we need to sit with that discomfort long enough to deepen our capacity for empathy. I hope that helps. Yeah. Yes, please. So in light of recent events on various com college campuses, including many of them on our campus, I was wondering if you could uh, give me some advice about encouraging people that don't want to be part of the conversation about race into joining it and feeling um, safe enough and willing enough to engage in that conversation. Okay. So, yeah, I'm happy to offer some suggestions. And one of the things that I want to offer is um, structure. And by that I mean that... Uh, Sometimes, we, when we want to create opportunities for dialogue, we have, um, you know, maybe a one-time conversation, and people come to it, but once is not enough, right? You sort of need to have repeated conversations so you can build up a sense of trust, and you can deepen the dialogue and, um, 
And so the first thing I would say is to the extent that you can create a structure that allows for the same group of people to have repeated conversations, that tends to help. Now you might say, well, we've been doing that. Let's imagine you said that we've been doing that, but the same, you know, and some people come and it's a good experience and they, and we have good conversations, but there's some people we really want to come who never want to come, you know, who avoid the conversation. You know, I tried to bring my friend to this talk tonight and they said, I don't want to come. You know what I mean? That, that sometimes is people are just, you know, having uncomfortable, you know, they're, they're wanting to avoid the conversation. I want to take a moment to talk about why people avoid, and then I'm going to come back to what can we do about it. So I'm going to ask this audience um, a couple of questions, which I think will illustrate why sometimes people avoid. I'd like everyone to take a moment and think about your earliest race-related memory. And then raise your hand if you've thought of something knowing I'm not going to ask you to tell it. There's no risk here, right? <laughs> A few more hands went up. Okay, so many people have thought of something, and now I'd like to ask you how old you were at the time of the thing you've just remembered. And you can either call out ages or hold up fingers, you know, like five or six or, you know, I've, I'm seeing some fives, a lot of fives, Sevens, I got a six back there, eight over here. Okay, a lot of four, I saw four. Um, anybody younger than four? I didn't see a three. Okay, um, sometimes you get threes, but a uh, lot of fives, I saw a lot of fives. Raise your hand if you were five, six, or seven at the time of your recollection. Early elementary school, basically. Okay, so now I want to ask you what emotion, this is going to require you to call some words out, what emotion is associated with the thing you've just remembered? Fear. Painful, fear, confusion, confusion. outsider, outsider. Joy. joy, curiosity. Okay, so far I've heard painful, fear, uh, I heard joy and curiosity, um, outsider, what did I, anger, confusion. confusion, yes, thank you. Anything else you want to add to this list? Sadness. Sadness. Okay, so we heard joy, which is certainly a positive feeling. Um, and sometimes people will say joy, love, affection, often in the context of a caring relationship. We heard curiosity, which we might describe as a neutral feeling. You know, we usually are kind of pleasant neutral when we're feeling curious. Um, but we also heard uh, confusion and sadness and anger and fear and painful. And uh, all of those words are words that we would associate with discomfort. Am I right? We're agreeing on that. So now let me ask you this question. Think about that incident, those feelings, that age, and I want to ask you if you had a conversation at the time of this incident, whatever you've recalled, with a concerned adult, a parent or a teacher, 
somebody like that at the time that it occurred? Raise your hand if you did. Okay, I want you to look around. I think maybe I've got five hands up, six maybe, seven, eight. Um, raise your hand if you did not. Okay, so you, a quick look will tell you that there are many more did nots than dids. And this is always true. When I, I ask these questions of small audiences, large audiences, it's always true. People have childhood experiences with the kinds of feelings we just talked about, um, and most of the people in the room will say, I did not speak to anyone about it at the time. Now, let me ask you, how many of you have some direct knowledge of five, six, and seven-year-olds? Siblings, your own children, uh, kids you babysat for, you know, maybe you've tutored. Um, many of you are familiar, have some personal familiarity with younger kids. Five, six, and seven-year-olds are pretty candid. Am I right? You know, they kind of blurt stuff out. They don't keep secrets. They, you know, they say what's on their minds. And yet, here we have a room full of people who told us that they had this unpleasant experience in most cases, and it's something you still remember, and you didn't talk about it with anybody at the time that it occurred. That's a little counterintuitive, based on what we know about the style of interaction for five, six, and seven-year-olds. So why do you think it is the case that so many people will say, I did not talk to anybody about this thing that I still remember? Any ideas? Yes, so even at the age of five, six, or seven, you have already somehow learned that this is a taboo topic, that people don't want you to talk about it, that they don't want you to bring it up. And you know, sometimes people will say, well, I didn't talk about it because it was my parent who did the thing that confused me, or it was my teacher who you know, was the source of the unhappiness. But, um, but for a lot of people... They can't always articulate it, but they will often say, I just knew I wasn't supposed to, right? And think about this. Think about, imagine a young child in a grocery store. Let's imagine it's a predominantly white community. Let's imagine it's a white child. Let's imagine that white child is seeing a dark-skinned person, maybe for the first time, like a three-year-old. And that three-year-old says, Mommy, why is that person so dark? What does Mommy say? Absolutely. That's a shh moment. And, uh, and now she doesn't have to shh. You know, she could say because people come in different colors. Just like some people have dark hair, some people have light hair, some people have dark skin, some people have light skin. It doesn't have to be a heavy-duty conversation. But most of the time, the response is to hush. Um, and if we think about the fact that we learn early that we're not supposed to talk about these things, and then we invite people in their adult years, come, have a conversation. <laughs> you know, They've had a long time of knowing you're not supposed to, right? Especially in racially mixed company. And so for a lot of people, there is that just initial barrier of getting over that, you know, that pit in the stomach message that's telling you you're not supposed to do this. And if you do get over the pit in the stomach, how many of you have had an uncomfortable conversation in the last 12 months with somebody on a race-related topic? 
a lot of hands are up, right? And so not only do you have this early learning that you're not supposed to talk about it, but you have recent experiences that have been unpleasant or hard or somehow tough. And so then we say, oh, please join us. You know, people don't want to. But here's the reality. My experience, based on years of teaching about this class, not just to college students, but doing professional development workshops with educators, teachers, K through 12 and uh, higher ed, is that when you create the space and the guidelines, the safety, and ask people to come, not just today, because today we might feel awkward, but tomorrow it'll be easier, and the third time it'll be even easier, and the fourth time we still might have some differences of opinion, but we are now invested in the conversation, we built some trust. If you have that sustained dialogue, what happens is people get energized. I did a research project with um, educators who had participated in a semester-long experience where there was a lot of dialogue about race. And then some of them decided they wanted to facilitate dialogues in their um, schools where they worked, right? So now they're working as facilitators, maybe after school discussions, they're facilitating them. And then we did um, interviews with these people who had become facilitators to ask them about their experiences. And one of the things they kept saying over and over again was how energizing it was. And I started to think about why do people keep using that word, energizing? I had so much energy. I got so much energy from it. And I started to think about what happens when you repress things. It takes up a lot of psychological energy, right? And if we, you know, if there's an elephant in this room and I tell you all to please ignore it and don't mention it, it's going to take a lot of psychic energy to ignore that big elephant that's about to step on you. You know, it's going to take a lot of energy. And when, and racism is like that in our society. You know, when people say they don't see race or they're not aware of racism, they're using a lot of energy not noticing right? They are using a lot of energy. And when you give people the permission to have those conversations, it may not feel good at the beginning, but it starts to feel good after they really can feel the connection and, um, and start to feel like they can do something about it. So I always say, if people are not having a good experience, in part, it might be because they haven't done it long enough. You know, it's kind of like taking an antibiotic. If you, go to, if you have an ear infection and you go to the doctor and they give you an antibiotic, what do they tell you? Take the whole thing, right? Your ear feels better after the first couple of days. But you have to take it all two weeks or ten days or however long it is. And what happens if you don't? It comes back and comes back worse. That's right. And that's what's happening in our society around conversations about race. We don't take the whole thing. It comes back, and it comes back worse. And that's what's happening right this minute. It's coming back worse. So we have to engage in the um, hard work of doing it. Now, I want to. you asked me, what do you do if people don't want to, right? And I've given you a long answer as to why they don't want to. But here's what to do if they don't. Do it without them. And this is what I mean. 
you know, sometimes people say to me, you know, you spend a lot of your time talking about this stuff. Don't you feel like you're preaching to the choir? And this is what I say to that. The choir needs rehearsal. Right? The choir needs rehearsal. And when, so if you have, you know, a coalition of the willing, work with those people. And when they sing better, it inspires other people. Right? When the choir is singing really well, when they can respond to the questions and when they can, you know, interrupt the jokes and they can, you know, when they get better at it, they are, um, they inspire others to join them. So that's it. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Tatum, this is a question about people who start with a psychological reaction that it's uncomfortable, yeah. but they turn it into an ideology. They either turn to race that problem solved, or it's a bad thing ever to acknowledge race. Kaepernick is wrong because he's drawing attention to race, and that doesn't help anybody. So mm -hmm. it's become an ideology, and at least around universities, you will sometimes run into people whose objection, they've made their objection or their discomfort noble yeah. by calling it an ideological position? Well, certainly um, there are ideological positions. You know, the colorblind ideology is a strong one, right, where people say, you know, we should not, um, you know, if we just stop talking about it, you know, we would go away, right? Um, I, my own opinion about that is that uh, my my own? It's not a. I guess what I want to put it not as an opinion, but my experience of working with people who have taken that point of view is that it helps to provide them with additional information, right? So that um, so the person who says you know we shouldn't talk about it um, can sometimes not always, but sometimes be persuaded to listen to someone who has a powerful experience to share. Um, you know, those guys in Starbucks, let's imagine, you know, are coming to talk to that person about the fact that their experience in Starbucks was not a colorblind one, right? Um, and that, um, you know, I often find that the most uh, strongly held points of view are often being held by folks who have a very ahistorical understanding of the world. And I, I recently, there's a, a colleague who's working on a book, um, and uh, I was given the manuscript to take a look at before it comes out. It will be out next year sometime. Um, but one of the points he was making in his book was the fact that the U.S. is a society that does not like to dwell on its history. You know, it's like, put that behind you, move forward, let's not talk about that. Um, but that unfortunately, the, you know, even if you're not acknowledging it, it's still shaping what has happened in your life and in the lives of other people. And so one people sometimes ask me, why is my book, Why Are All the Black Kids, the New Version, so much fatter than the first one? <laughs> it's about 150 pages longer. And one of the reasons it is longer is because I put more historical information in it. 
because it seemed to me that it's very hard for people who don't have a fundamental understanding of um, U.S. history. I'm a psychologist, but I have learned a lot of U.S. history. Um, if you don't have a fundamental understanding of that history, it's easy to dismiss, you know, uh, the lived experiences. I'm going to come back to that uh, veteran example. You know, so the person who says, you know, my parents worked hard and, you know, came here as, you know, my father fought in World War II and he got out of the Army and he worked hard and bought a house and earned a job and, you know, did all those things so that I could go to college and make a better life for his kids. And, you know, it's not my fault that other people didn't do that too, right? Um, that history, that narrative leaves out a lot of information. Like um, your father was able to go to a college with GI Bill, and certainly there were some black people, including my own father, who was able to use the GI Bill for his education. But a lot of people couldn't because they lived in places where they were nothing but whites-only institutions. So no place to go to school, you know. Or, you know, your father was able to get a loan to buy a house in a suburban community, but what you don't know is that suburban community had a racial covenant that only white people could buy in that neighborhood, right? Um, and... Uh, and if you couldn't get a house in a new location, the VA was less, the, you know, the housing authority was much less uh, willing and didn't give loans to buy older property in communities that already had people of color living in them. So, you know, there was all these things that made one person's path easier and another person's path more difficult. And yet, if you don't have that information, you know, if you don't, if the, you know, if you don't know the story at the bottom as well as the story at the top, you draw very different conclusions from the little piece of information you do have. So that's the challenge. You know, how do we get people who are embracing um, a point of view that is an ahistorical one to learn that history or to share it? I see that as a real challenge, but an important one for us to take up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming.